sometimes I think in our business, we focus a little too much on people who have strong presentation skills or extroverts who know how to work a room. And those are great, that's important. But when I think about major and principal gift fundraising in particular, I think that having that real keen ability to listen very carefully to what the donor has to say and to try to tap into their higher motivations for what they want to accomplish, that's when the real magic happens. Welcome to the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast. Whether you are a seasoned professional or a first-time fundraiser, we have the advice you need to take your next step toward major gift mastery. I'm your host, Tom Dauber, president of Abundant Vision Philanthropic Consulting. Thanks for joining me today for part two of our interview with Colleen Garland. For many of us, networking can be a real problem. We are so focused on the demanding work of leading a nonprofit, it can be different to network the way we would want to. But when we fail to build relationships with other fundraisers, we miss so many opportunities to learn. But it can feel intimidating to reach out to fundraisers we don't know, especially when they have impressive sounding titles. That's why I decided to do this podcast, to help the average fundraising professional have more access to some of the most experienced fundraisers in the business. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to follow it and give it a five-star rating on your podcast provider. Such support makes a big difference in helping other nonprofit professionals find this resource. Last episode, we talked a bit about Colleen's career journey and the lessons she's learned along the way. Today, we're going to jump right back into that conversation to glean some more wisdom from a true fundraising expert. Let's get back to the conversation. So you've talked a little bit about the positives and the negatives. You've also been in you know higher level executive roles, yeah. both at OSU, both at smaller schools. Yeah. What's it like managing at those schools? at that level? Yeah, well, so when I moved into the AVP role at Ohio State, I have to say it was really fun to to work, to get to know the deans. So mm-hmm. I had to understand at each college what was the dean's vision for what he or she wanted to accomplish um, for their unit. And how do we match that up with university-wide goals? And then mm-hmm. how do you get your gift officers all rowing in the same directions. I think back about like even coming up with the right performance metrics for the development mm. team yeah. um, was really essential in ways that quite frankly, when you're at a small place, you know, who's doing the work and who isn't. But when you've got, you know, 300 gift officers, it, metrics are important. The shared, the shared credit was mm. also really, really important um, to encourage and reward the kind of cooperation um that we wanted across units that came more easily at a small place, but you really Mm -hmm. had to have structures in place um, from a management perspective to, to, you can't just tell people like, well, of course you want to be, have the donor at the center and, and follow their interests for the gift. But you know, if you've got a, a gift officer in arts and sciences and where the person got their undergraduate degree and then one in business where they got an MBA and, you know, one at the Wexer Center where the person enjoys the art, like, you know, how how can you set up a system where those gift officers are doing what's in the best interest of the donor and not 
not feeling like, you know, the donor is this rag doll in the middle and everybody's mm-hmm. pulling in different directions. So I, th- I think back about how important that that was really. Um, but, you know, Tom, if the management question is an interesting one because at moments in our careers, I think we have these aha moments mm-hmm. and there was a powerful aha moment for me early on in my time as the AVP role at Ohio State, where I quickly realized that, quite frankly, it no longer mattered how good a fundraiser I was. I was simply one person. Now what mattered was how good could could I make everyone else, right? Yeah. So yeah. how could I help people succeed um, in ways that they might not have otherwise um, seen themselves succeed. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big shift. And then I think it happens in so many industries. You get promoted because you're good at something, but then what's required in that new role is a completely different skill set than what was required in the first role. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, having followed your career uh, over time, I'm aware that you've overseen significant fundraising growth pretty much at all the schools that that you've served at. Not everybody can say that. Could you talk a little bit about how you've been able to do that at very different schools? Well, again, I think it comes back to I don't see myself as having done it. I feel like Mm -hmm. I'm facilitating it, right? Mm -hmm. It's about enabling it. Mm -hmm. So one, I've been fortunate to work at places where I really believe in the mission. Um, but at the end of the day, any success of I, I have had is really about building teams of talented professionals, <clears throat> setting clear and ambitious goals and a course for where we're going, and then giving them the resources they need to be successful. And when I think about, okay, well then what are those resources? That it, it's not just dollars. I mean, the first thing we think of is dollars. And yes, you've got to make sure your folks have both the budget dollars to do what they need to do and that they're well compensated. Mm-hmm. But it often means equally important things like access to information, right? Do they, yeah. do they know enough to be effective at their role? Do they have access to the information that's happening or to the people, right? Do they... Do they have access to the right deans or provost or president, as the case may be? Um, Are we providing the right professional development opportunities? And really important, I think, is giving them the opportunity to fail in a safe environment, right? Mm, If people are afraid to fail, then we never get any better. And so I've worked really hard to try to create an environment where my teams see that we're pushing to always get better. And that means we're trying new things. And some of those new things are going to fail. And that is okay. That's, that is more than okay. That's a sign that we're being courageous and we're trying new things. So I think such a big part of the success I've been a part of is really not even about me. It's about creating that environment for other people to be successful. Oh, that's great. That is great. Well, speaking of teams, you've done your fair share of hiring over the years. I'm curious, you know, because we've got executive directors listening to us, other sorts of management people, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're looking maybe to hire chief development officers or development officers. 
When you think back over the years of your best hires, are there any commonalities you've seen emerge in those employees? Yes. So when I think about this, there are some clear qualities that I have sort of arrived at the conclusion that matter most. Mm -hmm. What I'll say I haven't cracked the code on is how do you best suss that out in an interview? So yes. <laughs> if somebody else has the answer to that, I'll, I'll be listening very um, intently. But <clears throat> the things that I think matter the most are a sense of curiosity hmm. and listening skills. Those are at the top of my list. And that somebody who is really eager to learn, eager to contribute, I really believe what, what we do can be taught. Most of what we can be, do can be taught if, and this is a big if, if the person believes in the mission and approaches the work with a sense of humility, um, where they're, where they want to learn and that they're willing to take some risks and learn the business. Um, sometimes I think in our business, we focus a little too much on people who have strong presentation skills mm. or extroverts who know how to work a room. And those are great. That's important. But when I think about major and principal gift fundraising in particular, I think that having that real keen ability to listen very carefully to what the donor has to say and to try to tap into their higher motivations for what they want to accomplish, that's when the real magic happens. And often it's more of the introverts who have that ability to, to really focus on um, the person that they're talking with. Now, again, our business includes more than just major and principal gift fundraising. So I have found that a lot of the people with really great people skills who know how to work a room, they can be fantastic in alumni relations and even annual giving where you're working with larger numbers of people. Mm -hmm. Um but when it comes to major and principal gifts, I think that ability to, to listen and ask really thought-provoking questions that take the donor down a path that they might not have even thought about, that's the real key to success. Tom Dauber here for Abundant Vision Philanthropic Consulting. Fundraising can be hard work, and it can be hard to mentally get into the place you need to be in order to see new opportunities. Everyone struggles with it. We are like the fish in the fishbowl who just can't see the water they're swimming in. That's when having outside expertise comes in handy. For 25 years, I've been helping nonprofits analyze their challenges, discover new ways forward, and develop clear plans that lead to greater fundraising revenues. Now I am available to help your organization develop the abundant vision it needs to inspire new levels of philanthropy your nonprofit as well. Check out AbundantVision.net to start your journey toward greater fundraising success today. Now, back to the show. Well, you've been fundraising for quite some time, Colleen. I would love to hear from you about the most meaningful gift that you've ever closed. What made it meaningful and what steps were involved in closing it? Tom, you know that's an impossible question. That's like asking me to name my favorite child. <laughs> uh, I know to be helpful um, to this conversation, I need to give you some specific examples. But I want—I just want to say that on any given day, if you ask me who was my favorite, I it would—I would give you a different answer. So I understand. Um, 
I, I think the gifts that stand out to me are the ones where the donor really stretched to make the largest gift mm-hmm. of his or her yeah. lifetime uh, because they believe so strongly in the cause um, and they and they stretch. Um, and quite frankly, it's those where the gift brought as much joy to the donor as it brought to the institution. Yeah. So... Of course, because I'm talking with you and we spent time together at the College of Dentistry, I have to talk about Dr. Mag, who I just yes, do it. loved. So, I mean, Dr. Mag was just a fantastic, um, wonderful man in, down in Cincinnati, had a great practice, um, had never, ever made a gift of this size. But we... Um, got to talking about a gift of a million dollars. I love this. I love to tell his story because we were getting pretty close to finalizing the gift. And this would have been, what, 2008, I guess, when the stock market plunged. Yeah. And and he said, oh, Colleen, I can't, I can't do that, 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 that gift. Come back to me when the Dow reaches, I want to say it was like 14. Um, (laughs) And I put a stock ticker on my desk and every single day I checked that stock ticker and the day it passed 14 I called Dr. Mag and he came of course you know how it works when you're calling the doctor's office it's hard to catch them on the phone he comes to the the phone laughing and he says I knew I would hear from you today (laughs) So, so that milestone was reached. He knew that I was going to hold him accountable to it. And um, we were we were off and running. And he and his family made um, not only their largest uh, gift, but the largest outright gift that the College of Dentistry had ever received. So that was just thrilling for, for his family um, and for us. You know, I think about <clears throat> a recent family that I've been working with at Kenyon, actually, who are the parents of a former student. So they're you would think, why would they care about Kenyon? Their daughter graduated hmm, 10 or more years ago. Mm. But this is a family who cares deeply about first-gen students, students who come from limited financial resources. We had just come off of a fundraising effort that was focused on increasing the enrollment from those kids, mm-hmm. our eligible and DACA students. And so in conversations with this family, they said, okay, well, now you were successful with that. You're going to have all these additional students. We want to make sure that you have the resources to support them when you're, when they're there and that they can thrive. And so again, this family that um, had been making modest annual gifts, but who we knew had the potential to do more um, are now in a half a million dollar commitment for um, a pilot project to expand the access, um, the support systems for for these students. So that's a a really recent one. I can't talk about my favorites without mentioning the really sort of breathtaking gift um, that I was so fortunate to work on at Kenyon with one of our donors who is anonymous, um, Mm -hmm. but who made a $100 million commitment. And the reason it's so powerful, this is a very generous person. This is not Um, by any means his first, although it's his largest um, gift to Kenyon. The reason it matters so much is the very careful way he looks at our campus Hmm. and he thinks about how the campus should be developed in ways that retain 
the beauty and the respect to our historic architecture. As I mentioned, we're coming on 200 years. So it's a college that's been around for a very long time. We're on the top of a hill with beautiful surroundings. He cares very deeply about how do we preserve the views, but yet he also wants to understand how do we grow in ways that meet the needs of current students and current <clears throat> enrollment goals. Mm-hmm. And at Kenyon, we came out with a strategic plan that called for some modest growth in enrollment. We're 100% residential as a campus. And so in order to grow, that means we have to build residence halls. Well, if you were to ask me before working with this donor, you know, can, do donors give to residence halls? I would say absolutely not. <laughs> like they don't. <laughs> donors don't want to give to residence halls. But in this case, this donor over, you know, time understood that that was our our biggest priority. Um, and we had a campus master plan that showed where, if in fact we were to need new residence halls, where they would be sited. Mm-hmm. And about a year of conversation, one day, the president and I were sitting with him and he said, I know you guys can't afford to do this on your own. What if I fund the whole thing? And those were the magical words. And Tom, really, the, we hadn't even talked about the amount. It, wow. It was just about what we needed to do, what the build, the number of beds, the buildings, where they would go. It was probably another six months of conversation before we even got to the dollar amount of what it would cost. Um, it was pretty extraordinary. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing those stories with us, Colleen. You bet. I could do well, that all day long. I'll bore yeah, you. Yeah, I love it. Well, years I, in this business, we end up with a lot of stories, right? Well, we do. And I think one of the hard things, especially for, for fundraisers at small shops, is they don't necessarily have other fundraisers with to swap stories. Yes. Uh, and they don't have older fundraisers maybe working with them that they can they can learn from and 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 see doing the trade. And um, that that was one of the things that made me want to just start interviewing uh, a lot of my old mentors and and bosses and uh, just to make sure those stories get out there for some of my clients that that need to hear them honestly. I think that's so smart. Honestly, again, I think back to how fortunate I was to work with colleagues who, you know, were more experienced than me, they were older than me, and were willing to share Mm. their expertise. But there was nothing more thrilling than coming back from a trip and being able to go to my fellow major gift officers and say, guess what so-and-so did? Or on the contrary, geez, I'm really stumped with this guy. What advice do you have for me? Um, and create, you know, having that environment is so important. And I think you're right. If you're part of a smaller shop where you don't have a colleague across the hall or, or easy, easily accessed, you really have to be intentional about developing mm. your own network. I think back early in my career, some of your local listeners might recall Terry Chavone, who was at the Columbus Foundation for mm. years. Mm-hmm. Terry and I became friends and he became one of my like go-to mentors because he was outside of higher ed. I had plenty oh. of people inside higher ed, but I wanted somebody who thought differently and could you know, help me see another way of thinking about things. So I think developing that network of people who you can share ideas with and learn from is so important wherever you are in your career. I mean, I, I'm learning from my, my staff and my peers every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember 
when you moved us over to to six sixty Ackerman Road for a time, yep. while we waited on better facilities over there at the dental school, and uh, you know my cube was right next to um, Steve Tumblins, mm-hmm. uh, who was doing corporate, and uh, I just learned so much from him yeah. in corporate fundraising, and that ended up you know really impacting both my my career at dentistry, but really at, at pharmacy, uh, where there was just just a whole load of of uh, corporate work to be done, but. You know, I may not have ever gotten to know Steve, uh, you know, had it not been for you moving us over there, you know, so it really does make a difference. Tom, I think proximity is so important, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that yeah. like, you, Steve was part of your larger Ohio State colleagues, but without yeah. that proximity, you wouldn't have had the same chance. And that's where, again, we, we certainly talk about that a lot at a small residential liberal arts college, like living and working together matters. Uh, yeah. I think you know, professionally, it also matters. So for those who are at smaller shops, being really intentional about, you know, whether it's joining the AFP chapter or going to case conferences, then staying in touch with people after, just building that network is really important. That's for sure. Well, you've already shared some advice, but I'm I'm wondering, do you have any other advice for inexperienced fundraisers, whether they're development officers or executive directors, who are looking to develop some level of mastery in soliciting major gifts? Well, I think my advice is, doesn't matter if you're inexperienced or experienced, like never stop learning. Mm -hmm. I I really feel like I am still learning every single day. What I love about this business is that we can be successful with very different styles, right? Mm -hmm. So you may go about your, your style of asking and working with the donor very differently than I do. And we can both still be successful. And that's, that's what right. I love about it, right? That you can bring your own personality to it. Um, but there are some sort of best practices, some systems um, that I think are essential. So I still, to this day, if I go to a conference, if I pick up one tiny thing, often it's something I already knew and then just forgotten about, right? That it's essential. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the advice really just goes back to what I said at the at the outset about qualities, it's a curiosity. So there are so many resources available to someone who wants to learn how to get better at this business, whether that's podcasts like yours, it's books, it's conferences. Um, it's There's just so much out there now that there's really no reason why you can't get better at it. It's the discipline of making the time. So I think that this is true of all of us. There's so much that comes at you in any given day that feels urgent. And we have to have the discipline to carve out time in our schedule every day for the things that are important, but not urgent. And improving your skills is one of those. You got to take time to do it every day. No, that's fantastic. That's great advice, Colleen. Well, Colleen, this has been so wonderful to have you on and, and to revisit a few of the, the, the times that we've spent together in fundraising. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. It's, it's been a true pleasure. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm so glad that we've been able to stay in touch all these years, Tom, and uh, I hope that your listeners might find some little nugget in our conversation that's helpful to them. Oh, I'm sure they will. Well, that does it for this week's episode. As always, I'm your host, Tom Dauber. Thank you for joining me as we journey together toward major gift mastery on the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast.